This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. I want to begin the program by getting you to consider everything you know about global warming. You probably know that it's caused by the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. You probably know that the burning of fossil fuels is the main contributor to that buildup. You might know some very scary stuff about feedback systems and tipping points and so on. But the thing about climate science is that it's incredibly complex and technical and difficult to get your head around. Are you a climate scientist? Probably not. So how do you know all this stuff about global warming? Or to put it another way, how can you be sure that the information you have about global warming is knowledge and not just opinion or speculation or even misinformation? Well, the answer comes down to trust. We dignify certain kinds of information with the term knowledge because it comes from a source in which we have faith. And that's been the case since our very first day at school. But in a world where misinformation has become a lucrative industry and it's pushed at us from all directions, how much trust and what kind of trust should we place in third-party sources of information, whether individual or institutional? And what is the nature of trust in the first place? Well, joining me now to chew over all these questions is Mark Alfano. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. And later this month, he's going to be speaking at the University of Wollongong on the relation between trust in institutions and epistemic virtue and vice. That seminar is also going to be online, and I'll give some more details about that a little later in the program. But for now, uh, Mark, welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'd like to begin by talking about the relationship between trust and knowledge. We've inherited this uh, Cartesian model of knowledge where it's often understood as something that we get via the exercise of our own rational faculties as individuals. Like, I know things about the world because I observe the world and I draw conclusions based on those observations. But I wonder if you agree that there's a very important sense in which knowledge depends on trust, which means that knowledge relies on a kind of faith as much as it does on empiricism, and that that implies that knowledge is a, a social phenomenon, first and foremost. What are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, other people are part of the world as well. And so one thing that you can observe is other people. Now, this can take multiple forms. So you could run experiments on other humans. That's not trusting them really in any serious way. You could interrogate them. That's kind of a bit coercive. Or you could just ask them questions and, and see what they have to say. Um, or maybe they just walk up to you and say stuff, and then you have to decide whether to believe them. And in those latter cases, I think trust becomes very important. Because if you take a very distrustful attitude towards others, then you can't learn from them. So then the, the question becomes like, well, how do we place our trust? How do we place our distrust? How can we do that well and wisely? And you know, if you think about a lot of the knowledge that you have, including intimate details about yourself, you'll realize that you only have this knowledge because of trust. So for instance, your own birthday. Uh, you were there uh, <laughs> on your birthday, but you don't remember it. So you have to take it on trust from other people that this, in fact, was your birthday. Lots of things about ourselves we learn from others. And I, I think that once you start to consider all of that, then it becomes kind of obvious that empiricism requires trusting other humans uh, rather than empiricism being kind of opposed to 
trusting others and, and not taking their word. Um, I mean, th- this is an interesting and, and tricky phenomenon. So like, if you think about the Enlightenment m- mottos, uh, for instance, from Immanuel Kant, uh, he says uh, that the motto of the Enlightenment is sapere aude, right? Have the courage to think for yourself. Likewise, the, the motto of the British Royal Society uh, was and is still uh, nullius in verba, which means take no one's word for it, right? So that sounds like, you know, do it all yourself, but that can't be what they really meant. And even poor Descartes, who often gets wheeled out as, you know, a, a whipping boy for this kind of stuff, he was a central node in the Republic of Letters in his day. Um, so uh, for the uh, listeners at home who aren't familiar with this, the Republic of Letters was a group of philosophers and scientists during the Enlightenment who would exchange and forward letters to each other. They formed this kind of network, a social network, if you will. And when you got a letter from someone else who was a member of the Republic of Letters, you would make many copies of it and send it to all of your contacts within the Republic of Letters. And it stretched from Central Asia all the way to North America. Descartes is one of the uh, central members of the Republic of Letters in his own time. Uh, And even in the meditations, which is kind of the thing that people use to suggest that Descartes is this kind of individualist, at the end of the meditations, there are replies from six different critics that he responds to. So he was actually kind of a social butterfly uh, and not at all some kind of arch individualist. Yeah, very interesting. So he, he was sort of plugged into the social media of his day. Yeah. Um, I like the example of the birthday because that's one where really we're placing trust in um, institutional trustworthiness. And I, I'd like to get onto that. But there's something that I wanted to talk about first, which is that, you know, we're inclined to laugh at conspiracy theorists and, and gullible people who think that the US election was stolen and so on. But I saw an anti-vaxxer on YouTube recently, and he was saying that the guy who invented the COVID-19 vaccine refuses to take it himself, okay? And I go and look at this person's other YouTube videos, and they're all rants about leftists and globalists and cultural Marxists. So I just decide that this guy is untrustworthy because he is clearly not of my tribe. What I don't do is go away and investigate whether or not the guy who invented the COVID vaccine really has refused to take the vaccine himself. So am I as wrong to reflexively mistrust this person as an anti-vaxxer is wrong to reflexively trust him, right? What's the difference there in terms of epistemic vice and virtue? When it comes to conspiracy theories, I think there are several distinctions that are worth bearing in mind. So one has to do with whether people are actually expressing their beliefs or just kind of expressing a tribal identity or uh, some kind of emotional attitude. Because what, what we consistently find is that if you just let people say that whether they accept a conspiracy theory, an un- unwarranted one, um, you might get as many as 20% of your participants saying yes. But if you incentivize them and you say, look, this is either true or false, and we're going to give you some money if you get it right, then that number goes down to about 9 or 10%, which is still troubling, uh, but is, I think, a little bit encouraging. Um, so it's not actually that many people who accept conspiracy theories. Um, another distinction that is worth bearing in mind is between sort of conspiracy theory entrepreneurs on the one hand, and conspiracy theory consumers 
on the other hand. So I guess this guy, his YouTube channel, he's probably trying to monetize it. Mm, yeah, he, he's an Alex Jones type. Yeah, exactly. So he might not be saying something that he even believes. He's just saying something that'll get him watches and clicks because then he can make money off of advertising or, you know, hawk some kind of product at the end of his video. Maybe he's like into herbal remedies or something. And the number of entrepreneurs is actually very, very low. The consumers are a larger uh, population. So when we start thinking of things in that way, it becomes a little less troubling. Um, but that being said, it is interesting that people will just dismiss out of hand conspiracy theories, because the fact of the matter is that there are conspiracies. I mean, it's a federal crime. People get convicted of it and thrown in jail, right? So the question is not like, do you accept all conspiracy theories, uh, but rather, which ones do you find plausible? And in ongoing research that we're doing right now, we actually find that people who are open-minded and especially people who score low on intellectual arrogance and high on a disposition to criticize their own in-groups are simultaneously better at rejecting unwarranted conspiracy theories, like this COVID one that you mentioned, and better at accepting true or warranted conspiracy theories like that uh, Osama bin Laden plotted 9-11. So there's a certain kind of discrimination that people can bring to the table and they are able to sort of plausibility check conspiracy theories and say like, no, that one's not plausible or I've never heard of that in reputable media or things like that and reject the unwarranted ones while also accepting the warranted ones. But what about do your own research, quote unquote, you know, much mocked catchphrase of conspiracy theorists. And, and of course, with the COVID pandemic, we've all been forced to, to really reaffirm the value of experts and expert testimony. But is there still a particular kind of value, do you think, in, in lay research that we don't necessarily get from experts and expert testimony? Right. So that's the, the motto of QAnon. And it is dangerously close to the mottos of the Enlightenment, right? Um, you know, have the courage to think for yourself, you know, take no one's word for it, do your own research. These are almost interchangeable. Um, and yet, you know, we think of some of them as reasonable counsel and others as, as not. I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding among people who are into QAnon and related conspiracy theories about what actually constitutes research. So none of them is actually running like stage three clinical randomized controlled trials and analyzing data. That's research. What they're doing is searching around on the internet for someone who tells them what they want to hear and then saying, see, I was right all along. Now, of course, in, in academia, we also search around and read what other people have to say. We do peer uh, literature reviews and stuff like that. But first order research involves collecting and analyzing data that will help you to answer the question that you're interested in. Uh, and as far as I know, no one who's a skeptic about coronavirus vaccines has done anything even closely resembling that. I want to talk about the importance of social context in the way that trust works. There's a, a very interesting passage in Nietzsche that you've written about where he writes about the role of trust and mistrust in the sciences. And, and Nietzsche says that you need to have both of those things in play depending on where you stand with respect to any particular domain of knowledge. Can you tell me some more about that? I think that's really interesting. 
Right. So Nietzsche is not generally thought of as a philosopher of science. He's more thought of for his work about morality. But in some of his early work, especially, uh, and the stuff he has to say about perspectivism, he actually has some really insightful things to say. So this is a, a passage from the book Human All Too Human. And he says that regular and rapid progress in the sciences is possible only when the individual is not obliged to be too mistrustful in the testing of every account and assertion made by others in domains in which he is a relative stranger. But the condition for this is that in his own field, everyone must have rivals who are extremely mistrustful and are accustomed to observe him very closely. So he thinks you can't just have trust, you can't just have distrust, you need a complex network of trust and distrust. And if it's set up in the right way, then people who don't have expertise in a certain domain can trust, to some extent at least, what the experts in that domain have to say, because they know that it's been fact-checked and that it's been criticized and that it's survived that criticism. Now, Nietzsche was writing this before the system of formal peer review was established, but already at that point, that was kind of what was going on. So if you came out and said something about, um, say, uh, biology, or you came and said something about uh, physics to the scientific community, there'd be a bunch of people who would be like, really? Is that right? Let me look very closely at your data, your analysis. Maybe I'll even try to replicate your experiment and see whether I get the same result. And when you have a system that involves that kind of institutional self-distrust, then anything that survives that is going to be much more reliable than something that is just what some guy has to say. Right. So I can trust an academic text because I know that there are experts who have brought their, what you might call, professional mistrust to bear on the text and, and, and put it to various tests of skepticism and, and, and fact-checking. Yeah. And, and there's a couple things to say about that. So there is this problem of predatory journals. So there are allegedly academic journals that just accept every paper that gets sent to them. And they do this because they then charge the author a publishing fee. I get spammed by them six times a day. Uh, and they'll ask me to publish on things that I have no expertise on, like astronomy or clinical psychiatry or you know stuff that where no reasonable academic would expect me to have anything useful to say. And they often name themselves in such a way that they look like real academic journals. So this means that, you know, when you see something that com allegedly comes out of academic uh, review, you need to check whether it's a real peer-reviewed journal or one of these predatory journals. In addition to that, even the peer-reviewed journals have a bit of a crisis on their hands in multiple fields. And this is some, sometimes called the replication crisis. It originated in psychology with this publication by Daryl Bem that claimed that people could see the future. Very strange paper. Uh, did pass through peer review. And that led people to say like, well, okay, that means that our standards of criticism within our own field are just not stringent enough. Because if this got by, then what we're doing to vet papers is not adequate and we need to raise our standards. So what I would not say is that you can trust anything that's published in a peer-reviewed journal, but rather that you can trust that 
something that has been published in such a journal survived the criticism that rises to the standards used in that field, then you need to check whether the standards in that field are good enough. So it is understandable why people would be a bit skeptical, even of academic peer review. Um, but given this crisis, there is a, a large reform movement that is trying to make science more reliable. And that involves multi-site replications, that involves pre-registration, various other practices. Um, I'm joining Peter Vickers, who's an Irish philosopher, in establishing one of these large consortia to sort of future-proof science, as he calls it. And scientists are, are people. People are imperfect. Um, so I wouldn't say, like, whenever a scientist says something, you have to believe them. But I would say that when you can observe that they're going out of their way to hold themselves accountable, keep themselves honest, then whatever they have to say is probably the best guess that anybody could have. Might still turn out to be wrong, but that's probably the best you can do. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone on ABC Radio National and Podcast. I'm David Rutledge, and this week I'm speaking with Mark Alfano, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. We're talking about trust, an increasingly rare commodity in today's media and political landscape. And the trouble is that without that rare commodity of trust, it's really difficult to know anything. In your work, you cite the uh, British philosopher Honora O'Neill, who has written widely about trust. And one of her maxims is that X should trust Y with Z only if Y is trustworthy with respect to Z. So we should only trust someone to do our tax return if their credentials are clearly established in that field of accountancy. There's something that seems perfectly self-evident about that. But in your view, Honora O'Neill's rule of thumb should be tempered with certain caveats that I find very interesting. Can you tease that out a bit? If, if we begin with loss aversion and, and risk aversion. Yeah, I mean, so the, this maxim is very plausible. So, you know, you should not go around trusting untrustworthy people. It almost seems axiomatic, right? But there are questions about what you lose when you take this very kind of cautious stance. And one thing I think is really important to bear in mind is that trusting is also a kind of way of investigating. And what I have in mind by that is a point that Jason DeCruz makes in a paper called Humble Trust. He points out that there's an asymmetry between trust and mistrust. So if I put my trust in you, then I'm going to find out whether I was right to do so. So if you prove trustworthy, then I think, okay, I didn't make a mistake there. And if you prove untrustworthy, then I also learn something. By contrast, when we mistrust other people, we never find out what they would have done because it's a mere counterfactual. So there are indirect ways to do this. But in most cases, when you mistrust someone, you just lose a lot of information. Now, the problem is that you can't go around just trusting everybody in an effort to find out whether they are, in fact, trustworthy. But if you are able to engage in sort of small token acts of trust, 
you can sort of let people build up a track record and you see like, okay, I lent you $10, you gave it back. I lent you $100, you gave it back. I lent you $10,000, you know, you paid me back. That kind of activity is a way of finding out about the social world and can be really valuable. And people who have enough resources to do that are likely to learn how to trust better because they get to practice. Uh, this is actually one reason why I think trust and poverty are interestingly related, because if you're rich, you can take a lot of these risks. And even if things don't pan out for you sometimes, you learn a lot and that will put you in a position to benefit later. Whereas if you're extremely poor, you can't afford to take these risks because even if one of them doesn't pan out, then you're screwed, essentially. So that's what I have in mind when I talk about loss aversion and risk aversion, and it's it's related to social inequality. Trust can also be therapeutic in, in a certain sense of that word. And this is another way in which we, we might be advised to trust somebody even if we don't feel that they are entirely trustworthy. How does that work? What do you mean by therapeutic trust? So therapeutic trust is this idea that has been explored by philosophers like uh, Philip Pettit, who's at the ANU, uh, Victoria McGeer, who's also there, uh, by me and several others. And the basic idea here is that sometimes explicitly trusting someone, sort of showing them that you trust them, can function as a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. What do I mean by that? Um, the basic idea is that when you put your trust in someone, that can change their mindset and make them more likely to prove trustworthy than they would have been and they had been until that signal was given. So to be trustworthy is a kind of double-barreled disposition. To be trustworthy means to be competent in the domain where one is being trusted. The second aspect of being trustworthy, and this is something that Karen Jones, who's at University of Melbourne, has written about, is responsiveness to dependency or vulnerability. So I might be a perfectly competent pilot, uh, but if you trust me to fly you around and I don't care or I'm actively malevolent towards you, um, then your trust is misplaced. So when we put our trust in people, that can influence both their competence and their motivation, their responsiveness to dependency. In the case of competence, it can give them more self-confidence than they would have had otherwise, right? So you can imagine someone thinking like, well, this person believes in me. I was kind of doubting myself, but maybe I can really do this, right? And then they, then they do do it. And likewise, it feels nice to be trusted because that's a kind of esteem. And it can also sort of change someone's self-concept and make them think of themselves as a better person. And then they don't want to lose that. So then they develop the motivation to do what they're being trusted to do. I want to finish up with a question that I, I still have sort of half formed in my mind. It, it's, it's more of an observation, but, you know, one thing that I find really alarming is the way that trustworthiness used to be a more or less agreed upon value. You know, it didn't matter if you were a morally conscientious person or a con artist, either way you wanted to be perceived as trustworthy. And that seems to have really changed if we look at some of the key players in right-wing media and politics in the US at the moment. That notion that my word is my bond has really just gone out the window. And instead, you have a guy like Donald Trump who is a proven con man, just 
compulsive liar, but he can get away with it because not because his supporters necessarily believe him, but because they don't care whether or not he's trustworthy. And that just seems to have infected a huge swathe of, of politics and media, not just in America, but, but in many other failing democracies. I want to ask you if any of that has any bearing on this cultivation of epistemic vices and virtues that we've been talking about. Do we need a, a new set of epistemic tools in a society where, where trust has become a kind of devalued currency? Yeah, <laughs> it's a problem. Uh, I mean, anywhere that the Rupert Murdoch media has gotten its claws in seems to be suffering from this. There's a philosopher in the UK named Kasim Kassam, and he sort of inaugurated the study of epistemic vice as opposed to epistemic virtue. For decades, people had been talking about, you know, what's it mean to be honest? What's it mean to be open-minded? What's it mean to be intellectually courageous? Um, and Kassam said, no, our, our bigger problem right now is that there are people with these various epistemic or intellectual vices, and that that's getting in the way of knowledge and understanding. And one vice that he talks about in particular is what he calls epistemic insouciance, which basically means you don't care about the truth. And I think that this is the kind of vice that you're referring to. And it's really dangerous. It leads people to engage in what the American philosopher Harry Frankfurt calls uh, bullshitting. Um, bullshitting is different from lying. When you lie, you've got to have a conception of what the truth is so that you can say the opposite. Um, when you bullshit, you just say whatever kind of comes to mind uh, without any regard for how whether it's true or false. So a bullshitter might actually say some true stuff, but it's not true because they know it or they believe it. It's true sort of simply by, uh, by happenstance. And bullshitting seems to have been taken up as a kind of political weapon, especially by the, the far right in the US, the UK, and elsewhere. Political strategist uh, Steve Bannon, who founded Breitbart News, uh, famously or infamously, I suppose, has even said in public to an interviewer that his strategy is to flood the zone with shit. It's kind of remarkable uh, that he it would admit this. Um, but the, the goal with bullshitting or flooding the zone with shit is not to convince people. It's rather to just introduce enough doubt that people don't know what to think. And Russian media does this as well and has been doing this for quite a while. When people don't know what to think, they don't act or they act on completely unjustified beliefs because if they're accepting bullshit and bullshit is not reliably tied to a representation of how the world is, then they end up with essentially kind of random beliefs. And this is kind of what we saw with the January 6th insurrection, with the QAnon people who showed up there. Um, they've got all kinds of weird beliefs that are completely disconnected from reality. So I don't know whether this is a totally new phenomenon, but it is prominent among people who have enough power to cause real damage. And I think that we do need to do something about it. What exactly we need to do is hard to say. Regulation of media would be one thing. Breaking up media monopolies like Facebook, probably another. Education, yet another. There's no magic solution to this. There's no silver bullet. But I think it is something we really need to address. 
certainly plenty more to write about if you're a philosopher <laughs> writing about trust. <laughs> so there is yes. that. Um, Mark, I've really enjoyed talking. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And Mark Alfano is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. Mark will be speaking on trust and epistemic vices and virtues at the University of Wollongong on Tuesday, the 18th of October at 11am. You'll be able to access the seminar online and we'll put details on the Philosopher's Zone website. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company and I will see you next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.